what Brooklyn sounds like. Welcome back to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Objection to the Rule, your Sunday 1 p.m. news hour. It is February 16th, 2020. Um, We're living in the future and it's bleak sometimes. (laughs) Um, It's finally cold, though. It is cold. Which I think, you know, just feels like this weird relief for me because it's like bitterly cold. But I'm like, this is natural. This is normal. Bitterly cold. But it's been like this time of year in New York. Yeah, but it's been like abnormally... um, warm this winter and it's yeah. just it's making my anxiety but what else is new it, it certainly has been bitterly cold yeah um, well, oh also i'm emily and matt's here with me today that's right um the two of us yep just just the uh just the two, the two pilots <laughs> normally there's um I'm picturing like a plane that has like four or five pilots okay. all with like <laughs> the plane steering wheel yeah. or whatever some of them are like kid play like steering wheels. <laughs> <laughs> they're all kids steering wheels none of them are real Good steering wheels. Yeah. That's, that would be a fun like chat show wheels. podcast for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like the just like beep beep. <laughs> just like making noise. Anyway, we got some news for you today. Uh, local, national, world, and a little bit of good news as we've been doing. Um, so I don't know. Any thoughts for the week, Matt? Before we dive in. Thoughts for the week. You said you were we're living in the future because yeah. like twenty twenty feels like that. That the number, just saying that number out loud feels so strange. I don't know how often I actually say it or have said it. I've written it a bunch, right? But I was only like writing the number twenty doesn't feel as crazy as saying it out loud, right? <laughs> I'm just right? Am I right? <laughs> I, I like this this image I have of you engaging in your life where you're just like. Oh, I just like write the date and think about, I just write like today I am alive. Yeah. This feels normal. Just journaling. Sure. Do you journal? I try to. Yeah. Longhand or? Longhand. I, yeah. Like, um, computer stuff for me is like for productive output and journaling is like unproductive. Just like, here's just what's going on in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Productive, unproductive. I I do so much work on my computer, but I also, uh, recreate on my computer. (laughs) So like I'll, right. I'll be working on something and then I'm like okay done with uh, close my laptop uh-huh. and then I'll just have to open it again yeah. because like oh I was gonna to take a break yeah to like watch YouTube or something but it's all on the one the one the box baby so having like doing longhand journaling or yeah. something on a different medium would be nice but... it is nice uh, it also just serves to remind me how terrible my handwriting is though <laughs> it's really bad Matt anyway I think it's time to dive into some local news um, so coming up I have we have one story. Uh, like normal form that we do. And then actually Matt's got another feature, uh, audio feature of a local uh, podcast school colors. So that's coming up in a sec, but um, to dive right in. So a local news story for y'all, uh, a judge orders developers of an Upper West Side high rise to remove some floors from that building. Um, in an exciting win against developers of luxury apartments in NYC, a state Supreme Court judge has ruled that a 52 story tower at 200 Amsterdam Avenue on the Upper West Side, which is still in construction but nearly completed, violate zoning rules and will need to remove floors from the top of the structure, possibly 20 or more of them. 
The developers moved forward with construction despite community groups filing suit at the very start of construction. So the lawyer for those groups sees this as a warning to other developers who proceed with construction in spite of pending litigation. Uh, And that was a quote from the New York Times. The developers used a weird loophole to get their permit from the Department of Buildings. Um, And Matt, do you remember that um, the story that um, Zoe did about the Department of Buildings and their hand in like another Brooklyn, another building high rise and like the the light by the the botanical garden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Department of Buildings has like (laughs) come up multiple times the last couple of months in like being on the wrong side of litigation over high rises. Um, So it's interesting. It's it's interesting, but also not surprising. Um, Just keep that in mind. They have previously they for that previous story, they issued a building permit despite there being a temporary restraining order saying the restraining order had nothing to do with their permit, which doesn't make any sense uh, and makes me really angry <laughs> when I read that. But anyway, so um, back to the current story. Um, so they got their their permit from the Department of Buildings in this weird loophole, which actually isn't out of the norm. Like, um, so you know how I said I worked in real estate? I've also worked in architecture, actually. And like, there's all these weird zoning rules that um, developers use to maximize like, you know, their their ability to build what they want. Um, and there's always weird loopholes. Like, they can buy, high, like, like um, unused, like, height from buildings adjacent to them. That's so wild. It is wild. So, like, you know, this building, essentially, they figure the shape of the lot is weird. So, they, they were able to, like, buy the, like, height from all these lots that are semi-adjacent to it. But it's, like, it's, like, well, it, like, it's maybe the legal letter. So like it's the tallest thing around it by a lot, but it's like the, they, there shouldn't be anything that tall there anyway. I like that. Cause it, it's like, you're not supposed to eat. Let's say you're not supposed to eat nine. Let's say you're allowed to eat X amount of pizza a day, uh-huh. which is already very optimistic <laughs> right. for most people. This is like saying like, Oh, you didn't eat pizza. Oh, yeah. It's, it's okay for if I eat that right. pizza. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like two people. Exactly. Um, right. So, you know, it, it is a very convoluted logistical thing, but uh, as the New York Times explains, continues to explain, it's common for developers to purchase the unused development rights of adjacent buildings to add a height and bulge to their project. And this project was really pushing that. So that's just reiterating what I said with uh, the support from the New York Times. Um, so the developers are obviously going to appeal as developers are wont to do. Um, so it's not set in stone what happens next, uh, but some logistical nightmares they will have to contend with if the ruling holds includes uh, what to do about units that have already been sold on floors that need to be taken down and physically how to take those floors down at all. So this thing is like already almost done. Yeah, that was my first question. Yeah. I was like, how do you? Yeah, Jenga it's a very. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And um, yeah, the, the our Times article said that this isn't the first time that something like this has happened where they've been ordered. So they have to like, you know, get lower on, uh, you know, this is too high or this is going to be too high. But this that like the last one, I think that was. Similar was like 91. So whatever they're doing now is going to be vastly different than then um, construction wise. And I don't, it might have been a different stage of development anyway. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, there's a lot of money at stake here. Not only the $21 million penthouse that would have been on the 52nd floor, which won't exist at the end of this, but the amount, not the, and the money that has been wasted to put the thing up and now must be again, wasted to take things down. Um, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can just look at that with Republican logic and just be like, jobs. Yeah, sure. More jobs. Sure. More work. So it's not <laughs> right. Only, it doesn't Developers matter definitely pointless. don't want to pay for that, though. Um, <laughs> so the New York Times did a great job summarizing the housing climate in which this... 
Oh my goodness. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> Felt really good though. Yeah. Anyway, the New York Times did a great job summarizing the housing climate, housing climate in which this is happening. Uh, the decision at 200 Amsterdam comes amid a wave of opposition to high-rise developments across the city at a moment when the luxury real estate market is suffering from a glut of inventory. Nearly half of new condo units in Manhattan that came to the market after 2015, which is 3,695 of 7,727 apartments, remain unsold. End quote. Um, yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about how there's all these luxury apartments that are just sitting empty. Um, I, you know, a lot of the ones that are sold of that number, um, I don't, you know, and I, this is just uh anecdotal because i don't have the specific number right now but a lot of them are bought by you know oligarchs from other countries as like a holding you know what is considered a secure holding place for like billionaires uh around the world but you know even uh a huge number of them aren't even like sold at all they're just sitting there empty amid amidst like um a huge homeless crisis it's kind of wild and really upsetting um and this feels like a win for you know against luxury developers but you know in some ways it's also not solving the homeless crisis <laughs> at all either have you um this might apply have you heard the phrase like the the tragedy of the commons yes i have does this apply to the that uh what's what's your logic applying it it's so it's when you have a, a resource is is drying up mm -hmm. and so ironically or paradoxically oh wait no i'm thinking of it yeah so so while it's i learned about it with in regards to like water usage and so, okay. like in California, certain nuts and uh, that take a lot of water, actually, the prices started going up. So people started using more and more water. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't apply to this. Mm. Um, but for a second, I thought it did. But mm -hmm. this is just weird because it's like mm -hmm. because there's a lack of housing, housing is more expensive. And so they're shooting the moon with their prices that are yeah, so high. In some ways, yes. So um, but there, the, the thing is, is that there isn't. A lack of housing there's a lack of affordable housing and that's where it gets really interesting you know in in home like we've talked about this a little bit here but homelessness is is a human-made issue like there's plenty of space for people it's it's an economic uh creation of people and you know the you know money that does doesn't exist all that stuff where it's like it's it you know if you don't view it as a human rights issue people just end up on the street um yeah, but there's, I mean, like, like, just like I said, there's, you know, I think when there was that burst of new luxury units, it's, I think it's less about availability. I mean, in New York, there is limited space, which off, which does contribute to the pricing in general. But a lot of this is just projection and um, developers trying to get as much money as they can in a hot market, regardless of, you know, whether there's the desire for from the market to support that, which, you know, half of them are empty. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, nuts. it is nuts and it's wild, but you know, keep your eyes peeled. I think, um, it's, it's a bummer for the developers, but it, it does feel like a win and, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it actually, they have, they take those floors down or not. It's going to be, it's <laughs> going to be tied up in court for a long time, I think. Cause that's a lot of money for them to, um, in, in all directions. That's a ton of money <laughs> involved yeah. in this building. Yeah. yeah, or they could just leave them and just have them be priced at uh, <laughs> affordable rates. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. Just, just keep them. Just, yeah, uh, dare to dream. You know, less than a thousand a month, and you, you can. Uh, hey. 
All right. Uh, you ready to move on to your audio feature, Matt? Yeah. So school colors. This is we're going to be playing the last episode of an eight part series on school segregation, past and present, put out by Brooklyn Deep. In this clip, they intro the clash over the redistricting that occurred at the Dumbo after the Dumbo population increased and became one of the most expensive renters in Brooklyn. Bunch of people want to move there. A bunch more kids and like family showed up. So this increased forced redistricting of the schools, which meant accidental desegregation, which many of the parents weren't too fond of. Mm. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a great show. Um, and they're in the other episodes. They go back in time. Uh, they really cover so much about uh, segregation and how different communities reacted to it, but also like how people can like mobilize and kind of follows the story of the activists Mm -hmm. so it's not just as disempowering as like this bureaucratic like Mm -hmm. shuffling yeah yeah yeah. all right here we go cool you need to get your bedding changed yes so this is just a youngster but he is lead poisoning how does um how do birds get lead poisoning the environment in new york city is quite toxic it really is in the soil the water the air it's everywhere and he has it Runoff, industrial runoff, water mixing with construction. Like Well, demolition, mm-hmm. really. As you take down an old building to build a new building, what comes down is maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, Absolutely. and lead paint Complain was banned paint. not so long this ago. Is a tale. One thing I wanted to ask you is the percentage of how many of the birds are here because of the city, because of human-made. Hey, so that was a little technical little mistake there yeah you were hearing uh an interview with me and this lady at the wild bird fund right i knew it sounded familiar it is a good piece but matt's gonna get that figured out real fast um in the meantime matt do you think uh, i should do a national story while you're figuring it out uh yes okay cool so we're gonna bump on ahead to a national story so teresa uh our other wonderful wonderful producer host couldn't be here today but she put together the story on uh, ICE. Um, So ICE measures are enhanced in security cities across America. So the Trump administration is deploying law enforcement tactical units from the southern border as part of a supercharged arrest operation in sanctuary cities across the country. The specially trained officers are expected to be sent to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Houston, Boston, New Orleans, Detroit, and Newark, Chicago, and New York, to boost the enforcement power of local immigration and customs enforcement officers. It's a lot of cities. (laughs) Um, The deployment of the elite tactical units teams known as BORTAC, um, B-O-R-T-A-C, will run from February to May, according to information released to the New York Times. They will essentially act as the SWAT team of the Border Patrol and be armed with additional gear such as, such as stun grenades and enhanced special forces type training, including sniper certification. In sanctuary cities, the BORTAC agents, agents will support interior officers in regular immigration arrests. The presence could spark new fear in immigrant communities that have been on high alert under the stepped-up deportation and detention policies adopted since President Trump took office. Critics of this move argue that this is a huge mistake and will cause more violence and collateral damage to friends and relatives of undocumented people. ICE agents typically seek out people with criminal convictions or multiple immigration violations as their primary targets for deportation 
but family members and friends are often swept up in the enforcement net. The goal of the new joint operation, one of the officials said, was to increase arrests in the sanctuary jurisdictions by at least 35%. Wowie. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we, I think, talked about ICE immigration, ICE stuff uh, fairly recently, Matt, and you made a good point about, you know, the way we deal with this is so disproportionate to the type of, like, you know, crime that's hypothetically being committed, right? Like if you're, if, if you haven't committed another crime in this country, right, your only crime is just coming here, um, you know, without the correct documentation. It's, it's essentially like a paperwork issue. It's the same thing as like missing a tax payment or something like that, which, you know, they don't send the SWAT team <laughs> to you for. Um, and it's, it's escalating violence. Um, and we talked last week about a, a guy who got shot in the face after getting tear gassed. Um, and it, it's it's bad. It's bad. And it, you know, moves like this. Um, like, you know, appeal to a certain base in this country that um, is very xenophobic, um, you know, doesn't see the value in immigrants at all in a lot of ways. Um, it's kind of upsetting. It's hard. Yeah, certainly. When I was in, uh, I taught in South Korea for a couple of years and after your contract finishes with the school or whatever, some people like it might like end that week or something. And mm -hmm. some people would, you know, overstay their visas and, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, I'm not supposed to do this, but whatever. Uh -huh, like, yeah. You know, I got a place that my, you know, I'm going to stay at my lease for a, a month or two more or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Cause like you kind of understand that this isn't right. You know, the reason for borders and um, having, immigration or whatever enforcement ideally is just something more about how you organize society mm -hmm. and like taxes and how you organize right. uh, resources and everything like that. Right. But instead, like we get thrust back to the middle ages where there's like moats. And yeah. I mean, everyone yeah. was joking about like how the, the border wall is an antiquated piece of technology from like from like the siege of Troy <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, it absolutely is because it's like, it it feels like a, a middle school like idea of how like landmass works in general, you know what I mean, and just how resources work. Um, yeah, the border wall is like this whole other issue too. But um, yeah, it's wild, it's upsetting, and and especially the fact that they're targeting specifically what cities that are considered sanctuary cities. You know what I mean? It's it's setting up this this um, you know federal government versus the states sort of thing and like local versus national in a way that's also kind of alarming, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The like, local versus national is a weird thing. Do you have any guiding principles about like what you think is appropriate federally and what you mm -hmm. think is appropriate on the state level? Well, I think, I mean, that gets tricky, right? Because my, you know, there are some things that I'm like, you know, good that the federal government stepped in like civil rights laws, things like that. Right. So it's it's it is one of those tricky things where blanket statements like that are skewed by what you how you want to view the world in terms of politics and action, I think, because, you know, the federal government here is saying no immigrants. But, you know, but, you know, well, you know what I mean, where it's like, I think when, when it comes to abuses of power, I think that I think that's where people can start to agree where it's like. I think decisions like this should be made congressionally and not as like a blanket federal thing. 
Does that make sense? Where it's like mm-hmm. more delicate, you know what I mean? Like uh, if if there's going to be a policy that affects the whole country like that or you know what I mean? But it is tricky, right? Like just like I said, civil rights was a lot of like um, legal cases and the federal government taking that up and deciding, you know, how it's applied. It's tricky, Matt. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think it is tricky. Um, <laughs> yeah. Federal versus state. I, I guess like you want federal government to be. The things that only the federal government can do. So like gun control would be an example mm-hmm. of that where everyone. Where, it's all or nothing. Yeah, yeah. Pro gun people are like, see, Chicago, Illinois, they have like strong gun laws and it doesn't work. It's like, well, I well, mean, it's because if there's fluid borders, you yeah. can't stop things from coming into their states. Yeah, that's a really good point, Matt. Yeah. Um, I'm picturing like like a concert, right? So mm-hmm. like if the federal government gets like, uh, I don't know what band even reference. <laughs> if federal government gets like Beyonce to play, like mm-hmm. you kind of need like some overarching um, like big actions. That's the federal government. But then like state government is like how everyone gets to the concert. <laughs> I don't know if I felt Let's see. Our analogies today off. But anyway, the, thank you, Teresa, for that reporting. I think Matt is is just about ready yeah. to hopefully play the right story. This, wait, you hear that? I do hear that. My computer is playing a file and I don't know where it's coming from. Ah, uh, okay. And so I think we're going to chalk that up to a technical difficulty. Okay, that's fine. But it is kind of some beautiful It's music. a beautiful song. I, I don't know why where this ghost file is yeah. coming from. Um... So how do you want to forward? Let's. Why don't we take a music break, Matt? We'll play oh. uh, music from my my phone, and uh, and then maybe while we are, oop, oh yeah, maybe while we are, oh oh, it was your uh, phone. We solved the mystery. We did solve the mystery. Okay, so not that this is interesting to anyone but <laughs> us. Uh, which I don't know. I think it's pretty show. interesting. So I had some files that I sent to. Emily yes. for previous shows and <laughs> yeah. her phone kept playing. Yes, my phone kept playing after. Yeah, okay. And uh, that is that's very okay. We're gonna we're gonna file that mistake away and not make it again, folks. Yes, okay. Here, learn from the past. School colors. The last episode of their, you know, their quite wonderful podcast. It's a tour de force. Most recent episode is that what you mean, or do you mean the last of the, se- the Good series? Good point. It's the eighth of a series of eight episodes Amazing. covering segregation. All right. Uh, school segregation, I should say, in Brooklyn. This is a tale of three neighborhoods and two schools. First, overlooking the East River and the Brooklyn Bridge, there's Brooklyn Heights, a predominantly white, old-money enclave of stately brownstones. Brooklyn Heights is home to PS8. Just east of Brooklyn Heights, but a world apart, there are the Farragut Houses, a complex of 10 brick public housing towers populated mostly by low-income black and brown folks. Across the street from Farragut is PS307. In between Brooklyn Heights and Farragut, almost like a hinge, is a neighborhood called Dumbo. For decades, Dumbo was mostly industrial, but the warehouses were turned into lofts, glass high-rises started sprouting up like weeds, and Dumbo now has the most expensive housing in Brooklyn. Dumbo used to fall within the school zone for PS8 in Brooklyn Heights. So as Dumbo filled up with upper-middle-class families, PS8 became wildly popular and severely overcrowded. By 2014, the school was enrolled at 142% of its capacity. Meanwhile, PS307, like so many schools across Black Brooklyn, had plenty of space. So in the summer of 2015, the Department of Education announced a plan to redraw the school zones, moving Dumbo out of the zone for PS8 and into the zone for PS307. If you were a parent in Dumbo with a child too young for school, you may well have bought a home in that neighborhood because you believed you'd be entitled to a seat at PS8. This rezoning would have taken that away from you. 
So when the city held a public hearing, Dumbo parents came out in force to protest, to make it known that they were not happy to be rezoned into a school that primarily serves the projects. They called our school dangerous. They talked about fires and things that they said happened at the school that never happened at the school. Of course, they talked about test scores. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a parent at PS307. She also happens to write about race in schools for the New York Times. They talked about um, lack of resources. Even though our school is a magnet and gets a million dollars in additional funding every year, even though our school had a Mandarin program and theirs didn't, even though our school offers art and music and their school doesn't, they said we were deprived and that their kids would then be deprived. But the main thing that kept coming up was concerns about safety, which, of course, is always a dog whistle. It's an elementary school. It is not unsafe. I clearly would not have my daughter in the school that I felt was unsafe. And they talked a lot about their community and wanting their kids to go to school with children from their community, which clearly was a very small community of people who were just like them. And so after all of that, um, I was very emotional because I felt, you're you're talking about my kid, you're talking about kids just like my kid, you're talking about children. Like, these are kindergarten parents who are afraid of other kindergarten children being around their kid. Never walked into school, never visited it, never talked to the parents who, what parent do you know doesn't want their child in a safe school? And that somehow our parents didn't want those things and that somehow our children in our school weren't good enough to be in a classroom with them. And these are all very good liberal people who are proud public school supporters and live in Brooklyn because they think Brooklyn's like so cool and diverse but have created this complete bubble of whiteness and wealth that they were going to protect and didn't seem to care that there were parents in the audience whose children they were insulting. I imagine the DOE was not surprised by this resistance from the privileged, mostly white parents who wanted to go to PS8. But they were caught flat-footed when the mostly low-income black parents at PS307 raised holy hell as well. Because it's 307 parents are black and Latino parents who live in a federal housing project. And... Everyone's used to just running them over and doing what they want with little resistance. This rezoning plan was not designed to integrate 307. It was designed to relieve the overcrowding at PS8. But integration was a possible side effect if those parents from Dumbo were to actually enroll in their new zone school. So after decades of doing basically nothing on school integration, maybe the DOE expected the 307 community to be, I don't know, grateful? But to a lot of 307 families, this felt like just one more example of the city bulldozing through their lives. And they raised enough of a ruckus about this that the DOE was forced to postpone a final vote on the rezoning for months. In the meantime, this rezoning mess attracted a ton of press and laid bare just how much anger and fear was bubbling under the surface of this community. A vote on the rezoning by the District 13 Community Education Council was finally held in January 2016. I was there. The first voice you'll hear is Faraji Hannah-Jones, Nicole's husband, who was co-president of the PTA at PS307. All that we will get if this plan go through is another PSA. A school that the lower income black and brown folks built only to lose all the stake in ownership. I am tired of better things being brought into the community and the community members being denied those better things. Gentrification, it's here. 
It's not going back to the old Brooklyn that we remember. Those times have passed. And what happens is people, I think, are unnecessarily polarizing each other and looking at each other only as a demographic. And I think that that's harmful. We feel disrespected and looked over. There are people here who have been here who will fight. We are not against diversity. It should happen. Does it need to happen right now? I'm going to say no. Voting yes to this rezone doesn't mean that we are blind to the fact that we have very big work to do. Voting yes means that we refuse to live as victims of the past. But I want to remind you all that we are not fools. Ultimately, local politicians all condemned the process, but supported the result. And the rezoning was approved. Watching all this unfold, I felt like what was happening in Dumbo was like a postcard from the future. I thought... Is this what's coming to Bed-Stuy? This is School Colors, a podcast from Brooklyn Deep about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. The fight over PS8 and PS307 wasn't really about school zones. It was about generations of racist policy and planning coming home to roost. It was about who the city serves, who our country values, and who gets to control what tomorrow looks like for them. These are vitally important questions that touch all of our lives. We should be talking about them all the time. But instead, it takes a crisis like this rezoning to open the floodgates. Everybody shows up for their two minutes at the microphone and goes home feeling bruised, and nothing fundamentally changes. Is that the best we can do? We spend a lot of time on the past. In this episode, we'll look to the future. Despite our aggressively progressive self-image, New York's dirty secret is that we have one of the most deeply segregated school systems in the country. So now, with gentrification forcing the issue, it seems like school integration is back on the table for the first time in decades. What do we have to do to not totally screw it up? And what does this mean for the long struggle for black self-determination here in central Brooklyn? There's a fire, there's a history in Bed-Stuy that is black. And I don't think we should lose that. I think that every time minorities have something good, it gets taken away from us, and I'd like to be able to hold on to something. I think that the boogeyman has been wrongly assigned. It feels like you're in a twilight zone. Things are on the move in District 16. These schools are doing something great. What's happening by default is that the district is going to disappear. So your fundamental question is like, how do you change racial dynamics in this country? Because that is what what it is. This is Mark Winston Griffin. And Max Friedman. Welcome back to School Colors. Just kidding. This isn't School Colors. (laughs) But that is um, the podcast School Colors, which has been put out by Brooklyn Deep. Um, They wrapped up a season all about uh, the... School segregation in Brooklyn and um, the history of it and everything like that. Uh, that's awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for putting that together. Um, I love kind of mixing up the texture of the show sometimes with the uh, the audio pieces you put together. Um, so we're going to take a little break, hit refresh. Hopefully no more technical difficulties, uh, which were surprisingly mostly my fault. Um, so this is a song by the Beths called Warm Blood. Uh, I picked songs that were uh, slightly love-themed, Matt, for Valentine's Day. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) And for the record, um, the technical difficulties. 
That was the wrong song. That was another technical difficulty. Here we that go. That one was your fault. The previous one was my fault, though. No, I mean, uh, yeah, we have another technical difficulty where the song doesn't seem to want to play. Oy! What a day, Matt. Okay. Let's see if this works. Anyway. <laughs> it just wants to play uh, Baby Hold On To Me by Eddie Money, so maybe I should just let them play. <laughs> no, here we go. Here's the right song. All right, guys. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs>
right. Welcome back to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour. Uh, We are back with some uh, news stories. And Matt, you have a national news story for us. I do. Oh, and I'm it's Emily and Matt in the studio today. Just the two of us. That's right. Holding down the fort with mediocre results. Two wild dogs <laughs> holding down the fort, just, just the way that uh, Trump thinks of America. Oh, God. A, a, fort, a fortress. <laughs> okay. National story, go. Okay. So I wrote a little bit of an introduction into this one. I love Matt's introduction. We, can, we yeah. can indulge in this. The order of the terms Asian American or African American, White American, Mexican American have always bugged me. I always thought if we linguistically put the American first, we'd at least subconsciously be more accepting of the variety mm-hmm. of Americans. My apologies to our Native friends and family that don't like the idea of this land being designated America in the first place. But when I worked with people with disabilities, I was taught to call them people with disabilities, not disabled people. Mm-hmm. And I think that has made a massive difference for me. But word order is very strange. It's not as simple as just priorities. In English, we are instinctively taught to list adjectives as popularized. We're we're taught to list adjectives in certain orders. And it was popularized a couple years ago in a tweet made by Matthew Anderson. Quote, and this is actually a quote of an older book. Quote, adjectives in English absolutely have to be in this order. Opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material. Purpose noun. Wait, repeat where that comes from again. Um, this is like a old uh, uh, English grammar book. I love that. Okay, continue. <laughs> uh, so, what is this? Is all weird? Okay, so basically, in normal English, you can have a lovely little old rectangular green French silver whittling knife. <laughs> but if you mess with that order in the slightest way, you'll sound like a maniac. End quote. An easier way to understand it, a mean little old man makes sense, but an old little mean man. <laughs> That's very good. Sounds yeah. very off. So yeah. Asian American linguistically may may make sense, but perhaps we can adapt and flip that order. It may be weird to say American Asian, hmm. but I don't remember Malcolm X saying by any means necessary, except, of course, slightly weird linguistic mm-hmm. adaptations. <laughs> Hmm. I think I'm going to step in and say that it's whether the American is a noun or another adjective. It is weird because when you right? look at the list of designation, there's like origin, uh, right. size, opinion, <gasps> color. Oh, so interesting. Anyway, continue. So this is all a big preamble for a wonderful article put out by the New York Times entitled Why the Fastest Growing Population in America is the Least Likely to Fill Out the Census. Quote, Asian Americans are the fastest growing population in the nation, born or but organizers and activists like Miss Yi, 63, worry that Asian Americans remain largely misunderstood. The population includes people from places as different as Nepal, Iraq, Vietnam, Taiwan, in occupations ranging from store clerk and taxi driver to lawyer and banker. The census, the activists say, is one of the best tools available to help capture that multiplicity, secure better resources and funding, and harness untapped political power, end quote. Advocates of Asian Americans see the census as a tool to better wield their rights and political power, but many are uninterested and, more importantly, unfamiliar with how it works. 
And if you're unfamiliar with how the census works, like me, basically it counts the populations so the government can allocate the correct amount of seats in the House of Representatives. But as How Stuff Works put it, the little website you may be familiar with, quote, the census is much more than just appropriating, uh, appro- 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 <laughs> appro- appro- I can't say that word, oh my God. <laughs> I lost where we were, uh, apportioning? Apportioning, I don't think I've ever said that. Yeah, I don't think I have let's, either. Let's apportion some things. <laughs> The census is much more than apportioning seats. It's a once a decade chance to track the shifting demographics of America. How many people live in big cities? How many children live in each household? What is the nation's racial and ethnic breakdown? Federal and state governments rely on census data to budget for social welfare programs. Cities and private industry use demographic figures to play to plan hospital expansions and housing developments and assets and assists the need for new schools or new strip malls, end quote. There are cultural hurdles to getting people who haven't engaged in the census to fill it out, but literal ones too. Well, not literal hurdles. Uh, <laughs> the census. But one of these <laughs> figurative hurdles is that the census is only in English and Spanish. That seems like a fairly blatant um Difficulty. I do understand that the census is massive, so it's the printing costs and the designing of it is more um, mm-hmm. intensive than I may uh, understand. But the citizenship question that the Trump administration earlier tried to get put on the census also looms. The effects of posing the question seems to have added to the reluctance for Asian Americans en masse to engage with the census. But as this article shows, many people are working on getting people to not only trust the census, but also understand its power. Hmm. So interesting, Matt. Big census uh, questions. I don't know. What? The census. I mean, that was yeah. uh, <laughs> a couple months ago. I misremembered the um, the Christmas story. And I thought like it was something else. But actually the reason why um, like jesus and his parents joseph and mary and god if you're religious i suppose uh they were they weren't fleeing they were they had to go back for a census there was a counting of people i think so that's that's why they were in bethlehem on uh, you know the whole no room at this inn thing yeah fascinating yeah the census it's uh it's important and interesting and it's um it's also politically charged these days as almost everything seems to be with um you know uh, the citizen question, citizenship question may be scaring away people who aren't fully citizens yet um, or aren't correctly on that path yet. Um, and, you know, under and smaller numbers means under representation, uh, lack, you know, fewer resources for certain areas. So it's tricky, man. Um, that citizenship question was uh, was taken off. Right. He lost that battle. Is that right? Trump? Yes, it's not on it yeah, yet. Good. Yet. Right. Well, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> um, thank you, Matt, for that story. Um, we're going to jump ahead to a world story before we take another break. Um, Should I read the title you wrote? Sure. Positive News. Re the Taliban? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the only I was like, this This is what this title needs to be. Uh, potentially positive. I don't know. Maybe. Um so it was a surprise. Um, on Friday, the U.S. and the Taliban have agreed to a, quote, reduction in violence in Afghanistan for a week long period. 
If this agreement sticks, it will be followed by a peace agreement after, uh, pardon my language, 18 fucking years of war. <laughs> Note that a reduction of violence uh, is, as a phrase, is not a complete ceasefire, you know, because God forbid there's a complete ceasefire, <laughs> but is very specific. Uh, no bomb or rocket attacks against civilians or the American-led coalition in, Af- in the whole nation of Afghanistan. Um, so it turns out uh, 2019 was one of the worst years in the conflict in terms of violence. Worst of 18 years. <laughs> Just to remind you, it's going on for 18 years. Um, quote, the civilian death rate averaged almost seven per day. The United States dropped more than 7,000 bombs and missiles. And the Taliban and smaller armed insurgent groups carried out about 25,000 attacks. Uh, end quote. That's from the New York Times. That was all last year. Uh, The peace plan at the end of this would include a withdrawal of all American troops from Afghanistan, but the U.S. uh, will likely try to negotiate the keeping of some intelligence officials in place. Um, So, you know, you might be thinking, like, this is like a really big deal, right? Um, So, yes and no. Um, It will be huge if it gets to the peace deal phase. But agreements like this have existed before and fallen apart uh, because of an inability to commit to the lowering the scale of the violence. Um, but here's to hoping that this one sticks and will end a war that's been going on for two thirds of my life. <sighs> Wild stuff. Big, yeah. It is pretty big. So it isn't, it isn't right. Cause it's, it's, um, it's kind of like you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you're still kind of like stuck in the dark sort of, cause this can go on another, you know, I mean like these things can keep happening and falling apart, you know, like middle Eastern peace deals decades and decades. Um, but you know, maybe something can come out of this. <laughs> Um, but it, it is interesting, though, because I don't remember reading about the previous, uh, you know, attempts at peace deals. Um, so, you know, it feels like momentous. Hopefully it is. Yeah. yeah. Do you know anyone in the army or um, the um, armed services? Ye- Space Force now that it's, <laughs> it's an independent wing? Stop. <laughs> uh, I have tentative uh, relations. I have like a relative who, you know, used to be married to a guy in the Navy. Um, a friend of mine was a Marine in Iraq for a while, but like current service members that I'm close with. No. Hmm. Yeah. Not that I can think of. And I, um, so sincere apologies if I'm getting that wrong. Oh my God. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I have, I have some, you know, I know some people, I know people, you know, I think, um, yeah, uh, friends of friends from college certainly are in the armed forces. Mm. It's like those tentative, adja- you know, adjacencies. It's not like totally outside my life. But how about you, Matt? Yeah, one of my friends uh, is in in the army. Mm-hmm. My uh, my cousin is a navy lawyer. I think mm, Jag. Um, maybe not Jag. Maybe he's an army lawyer. Mm-hmm. Shoot, I should know this. A few good men. Yeah, or well, at least one of them. He mm-hmm. seems alright. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wonder how many people are in the army can compared to how many people are farmers. I feel like they'd oh, be interesting, like two like percent of America. Like they both kind of have like this so this um romantic idea that Americans like all like like politicians all try to capitalize mm. like the farmer, right? The the, the army yeah. member, but like they both are two groups that really get like shit on. Yeah, yeah. Used. Yeah, and I mean. um yeah, I mean, we we getting into the politics of the U.S. Army is always a really touchy subject. That's like hard for I feel like for me to maneuver. But I was reading, you know, recently about how um, it's become like, uh, what is it? It's it's you know you get you're gonna get housing, you're gonna get food. So it's basically like the people who have the like 
the poorest people in this country are going to, it's like the best option for them. And it's kind of like, you know, people with the resources don't have to deal with it. Um, if they don't want to, it's interesting and it's, it's pretty wild. Um, but yeah, so I think let's boogie on forward. So we get to hit, uh, all the other stories we have today. Let's take a quick, like, uh, you know, brief music break to hit refresh. What do we got? So following in line with the, uh, the Valentine's day theme, this is heroes by David Bowie. back this is objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn you're here with emily and matt today and uh, matt has a another world news story for us you ready matt yes uh you titled this didn't you i did i like adding titles even though they're not you know we don't have to use them but no it's great i i think i i for the most part support the uh tradition of the editor uh, (laughs) making titles Um, yeah i think it helps organize just like the the thought process the, the thesis. Well, it's good. Like you have someone, I mean, I didn't write this article. I'm just doing right. a summary of another one, but you have like people who try to write a piece, blah, blah, blah. And then they send it to the editor and then the editor says like, this is what you actually wrote about. Like, right. I don't know what you thought you wrote right. about. <laughs> yeah. But like. <laughs> it's helpful to get a second pair of eyes on things. And the title, the much awaited title is The Monarch Butterfly Murders. Okay. Micho, uh, Michoacan, Mexico. Two guides for Monarch Butterfly Reserve were found dead last month. Monarch butterflies famously make a 4,500-kilometer trip from Canada to Mexico. Along the way, they play a major role in in pollinations and other effects that many ecosystems benefit that they pass through. So why would anyone have any beef with some fairly charming 
Butterfly helpers. Particularly charming if you watch the frequent Twitter post that Homero Gomez made where he's praising the the fairy-like demeanor of these butterflies and their ecological benefits, all while surrounded by this beautiful swarm of butterflies. They're very charming. He's just like, the butterflies are great. And he's just like, like, who (laughs) would want to murder that wonderful person? Well, the answer is land and logging. Quote, the drug cartels that rule Michoacan are involved in a range of different criminal enterprises, including illegal logging, of protected tropical hardwoods, firs, and pines. One theory in the community is that Homero Gomez was murdered for hindering the cartel's activities. He organized a large-scale reforestation program and set up teams of guides to patrol the reserve day and night, end quote. Even though these two advocates for butterflies and the cooperative farming community are popular and have worked with the government, which perhaps got them in trouble, it looks like the murders may go unpublic, unpublished, unpunished. Quote, impunity in Mexico is near total, especially in Michoacan, where barely 3% of murders are solved. We're, with a second guide, Raul Hernandez, also found dead in a nearby uh, reserve with signs of having been beaten with a blunt instrument, the local authorities are under pressure to conduct a thorough investigation. End quote. The story is important to me because it shows that even though there is violence in certain areas of Mexico, uh, uh, Michoacan in this case, perhaps still believing in wonderful things, uh, people still believe in wonderful things and do kick-ass things and take on things like climate change, even massive things that we think that um, individuals can accomplish. People are still doing that and fighting for a safer world. It's a heartbreaking story of resistance and sacrifice. And only more heartbreaking when you learned, quote, at Homero Gomez's funeral, a handful of monarch butterflies flew into the church and Ocampa and fl- fluttered above the congregation. In Mexican culture, the monarch is considered the soul of the recently departed as its annual return to Mexico coincides with Day of the Dead on the 2nd of November, end quote. Oh my gosh, that was uh what a story, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, they really um really believe in, you know, helping these butterflies. Uh, yeah. you know what they mean to um the larger world and it's just so I mean, I don't I'm not excited for people to be putting themselves in harm's way. Mhm. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't want to like, you know, from yeah, afar yeah, just yeah. say like, "Hey, everyone yeah. go become exactly. martyrs." You're right. Like, do what you got to do, but it is yeah. beautiful when people are willing to, um, uh, you know, not put up with people that have kind of taken over their um, mm-hmm. their area and, and way of life. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Um, so Teresa also put together a good news story that is, uh, I'd say, adjacent in the sense of um, people... A sense of trying to preserve the natural world in some way, maybe. Is that a segue? I don't know. Um, So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's also this is a good news, so it's not going to be as heartbreaking. But um, U.S. Cherokee Nation invited to contribute to the Global Seed Vault. Um, Have you ever heard of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, Matt? Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, you have. I have. I have. I have. That weird box up in the, where is it? Svalbard, I... uh, 
Is that we're going to find out. We're going to find out more about Svalbard. But um, yes, good. OK, I, I think I've heard of it, too. But um, so it's it's uh, supposed to save civilization and keep us all from starving to death after a kind of doomsday scenario. With close to one million samples from nearly every country on Earth, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in the remote Svalbard Island between Norway and the Arctic contains the largest collection of seeds and other plant specimens in the world. Last week, the Cherokee Nation became the first Native American tribe to receive an invitation to contribute seeds of their own heirloom crops and join the effort to ensure biodiversity and food security in the uncertain centuries ahead. The tribal office of the Secretary of National Resources collected nine samples of Cherokee heirloom crops to send to the Global Crop Diversity Trust, including Cherokee white eagle corn, the tribe's most sacred corn, which is typically used during cultural activities, and three other varieties of corn grown for consumption in distinct locations to keep the strains pure. These heirloom species predate the arrival of Europeans on the American continents, and their preservation offers a chance to secure critical biodiversity for the central North American region in case of crop shortages or other disasters that could result in flora extinction events. Svalbard will deposit its 2020 collection of seeds, including the ones it received from the Cherokee Nation on February 25th. Um, yeah, so it's a good news story, even though it's got some sort of <laughs> shades of doomsday in there. Uh, you trickster <laughs> Teresa, spiking my anxiety. But um, yeah, no, it's cool. Uh, it's cool that the recognition of, um, you know, the importance and value of more crops from more groups of people. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do. It is a little spooky, but yeah. Not yeah, too bad. Not too bad. Um, so thank you so much, guys. We are zooming towards the end of the show. You can check us out uh, online. We have some old episodes on our Radio Free Brooklyn webpage. Um, if you like us and you want to hear more original programming like this, uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is doing its Drive to Five campaign. It's the fifth year anniversary, and we're trying to raise some money um, so, you know, if you're feeling like you want that tax deductible donation to a 501c3, hit us up. We can use it. Um, yeah. So we're going to go out on uh, one last love song I picked out, which you got a sneak preview of before by accident. Um, any last thoughts, Matt, for the week? No last thoughts. All right. <laughs> All the thoughts are done. Rock and roll, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, so this is Baby Hold On by Eddie Money. Have a great week, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye.